Welcome to episode 18 of the Analytically Speaking Podcast. I'm Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. Today, I've asked Dr. Jim Grinius, professor of chemistry at Rowan University, to join me as a co-host for this episode. Jim did his graduate work at, with Jim Jorgensen at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, finishing there in 2014. And in 2017, he started his faculty position that he holds now at Rowan University, where his research group focuses on a variety of aspects of separation science, including capillary liquid chromatography, various aspects of band broadening and method development in LC, also low-cost instrument design and microfluidics. So thanks, Jim, for joining us today. I think this will be a lot of fun. Thanks, Dwight, for inviting me to uh, participate today. I'm excited to get a chance to talk to members of the separation science community. I think this is a very fun podcast. I've been an avid listener since the, the first episode, so excited to get to be a part of it. Thanks again for the invitation. All right. So today, Jim and I have the opportunity to speak with our guest for this episode, Dr. Kevin Shook. Kevin is the Shimazu Distinguished Professor of Analytical Chemistry at the University of Texas at Arlington, where he leads a research group focused on fundamentals of liquid and gas phase separations, development of new mass spectrometry-based methods, environmental and bioanalysis, and, and much more. And so I, I, in starting out, I'd like to share a little bit more background uh, for our guests just to help our audience get to, to know them in a way that isn't maybe evident from, uh, so evident from your publications. And I have to say that browsing through your CV, Kevin, was, uh, that was a fun read, uh, <laughs> really rich. So I, I see that you did your bachelor's work in chemistry at the College of William and Mary, right? Yeah, yeah, I actually, in, uh, in you know, Really appreciate the chance to be here and talk to you guys. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I started out at William and Mary. I went there initially to play football. Uh, I also had uh, no idea I was going to be majoring in chemistry at that point. Um, when I got my first D in Intro to Archaeology, I uh, I gave up dreams of of you know becoming the next Indiana Jones and decided <laughs> I would stick with chemistry because I seemed to be decently good at that. Okay. Great. And so uh, when I saw that, I realized now that we have, uh, so so all three of us here actually share kind of a colleague in common, Kate Perot, who just started a faculty position there at William & Mary. So super small world. So then from uh, William & Mary, you made a kind of a short hop to Virginia Tech, where you worked with the very well-known chromatographer Harold McNair and focused your dissertation research on fundamentals of electrospheric ionization mass spectrometry, which was still a kind of, I would say, relatively newish technique at the time, uh, finishing the PhD in 2002. I think, the, as I said, reading through the CV, the interesting places you've been and the important awards you've won are far too numerous to mention here. So I'll just highlight a few that kind of stood out to me. Uh, 2009 looks like was a good year in the sense that you received both uh, LCGC's Emerging Leader in Chromatography Award and also a very prestigious career award from the National Science Foundation that is really dedicated to early career faculty members. In 2007, you received the Cal Giddings Award for Excellence in Education, and I think for those of us really spending our lives thinking about separation, that's a, that's a really meaningful one, uh, being named after Cal. And then in 2023, it looks like you had a Fulbright scholarship and, and spent some time in the Czech Republic for that. Is that right? That's actually, uh, yeah, I just, I've won that award uh, ah, okay. for this 2023-2024 year, and I'll okay. actually go there in the spring. Ah, Okay. Very cool. Very fantastic. Okay. Uh, all right. So um, 
Now, I think having done this, uh, you know, several episodes now, one of my favorite parts of these interviews is talking with folks about sort of the origins of their interest in science and, and also analytical chemistry and separation science specifically. Everybody's, everyone's story is different. I think they're all interesting. And I think um, the older I get, the more I think that young people in high school and college, uh, if we can have them hear these stories more often, I think it's it's helpful for them to imagine that, well, actually, actually, I'm not really different from that. And I can imagine my doing myself doing that as well. So can you just speak to, you know, are, are, were there specific events or influences that you would point to that you would say really fueled your, your interest, interest in science in general? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I was, uh, my father was a chemistry professor at Virginia Tech. Um, so I did ro- uh, grow up running around the halls there uh, Davidson Hall in Virginia Tech. And, and so I guess that certainly feed into things. I remember as a young kid, he was a, you know, hardcore theoretical physical chemist. And I remember coming down, you know, before bedtime and he'd be sitting at the kitchen table, writing all kinds of weird Greek letters on a piece of paper. Uh, yeah. So that certainly, it was always part of my life. Um, like I said before, I, you know, I didn't necessarily think I was going to go into chemistry, but um, I definitely had a feeling for, you know, engineering or science. Um, ended up at William & Mary, didn't have engineering. I told you, you know, kind of uh, tried a few different things and, and ended up sticking with chemistry. Um, and, and even then, I didn't know, you know, what I was going to do with it. Uh, I, I, I basically had uh, one summer, my sophomore year, wrote to my dad and said, hey, can you give me the names of a few faculty members there in chemistry at Virginia Tech? And I'll write to them and see if I can get a, a summer internship. And um, Harold McNair was like the first one to get back to me. He was going to you know, give me a little bit of money, uh, which, you know, was, was nice. I was ready to sit, to go and volunteer. Um, so I went and spent the summer with him. And, and, you know, that was really my first exposure to chromatography. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was, that was certainly... It was, it was really happenstance. I think, you know, going forward, I, you know, no idea I was going to go into academia, uh, just kind of, you know, went that way. So it was, I, I feel like nothing in my scientific career has really been too premeditated, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. just kind of looking for opportunities and, and, and taking the next step and listening to what people think I should be doing or what I might be good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, Fascinating. So that kind of answers the next question, which was, you know, where do the interest in analytical and separation science come from? And I think, I guess, for a lot of us that are spending our careers doing that now, it's like the first time you see those peaks, you're hooked, right? Um, just kind of, yeah. kind of how it is. Yeah. I mean, like I said I didn't really know much about it, uh, but I could, you know, that first summer in there at McNair's lab, sitting in front of an HPLC, and I could make it run and and get some data. Uh, the next summer, he sent me to a uh, quality control lab at SC Johnson & Wax for an internship. And, um, and that was really, you know, that was nice. I got to go up to Wisconsin for the summer uh, and, and do that work and work with some great people there. But I didn't realize at the time that, that McNair had sent me there specifically to show me what a bachelor's degree in chemistry would likely do, which is the same thing day in, day out on a quality control lab, uh, you know, getting samples and running them. And, um, while it was, it was fine, I definitely was, had greater interest, uh, than, you know, just running the instruments. And, and so that, you know, led me to go and apply for the PhD program and, and work with him. 
Wow, that sounds like some real faculty uh, mentor wisdom at work right there. <laughs> okay, great. So thanks for sharing those stories. As I said, I, I really love that stuff. So um, now let's jump into your science that you're working on today. I think in a, we had a little back and forth about the, the interview today, and you identified a few recent papers and research topics that, that we could discuss. And so we're going to dive into those a bit. And just a reminder to listeners, we'll uh, post the citations to the articles in the show notes. So uh, in case you, you know, anyone wants to follow up with those in, in more detail later, they'll be easy to find um, associated with the podcast. So uh, now it's time for me to hand it over to Jim and he's going to, he's going to sort of lead the conversation for the first paper here. Yeah, definitely. Thanks again, Dwight and, and Kevin. Great hearing about uh, all the background and what led you to, you know, all the outstanding things you've done in separation science over the past several years. And, you know, I think that hearing about your training, you know, some people, you know, focus on maybe just liquid phase separations, just gas phase separation. I think definitely, and it probably comes a lot from your training as well, being able to bridge the, the gap between both methods, you know, pretty successfully. So, um, Talking about blends of things, you've done a lot when it comes to the fundamentals of separation science, but you also have a pretty broad array of applications that you've dabbled in over the years. So I want to talk about some of the papers you've published over the past couple of years that kind of demonstrate both key aspects of that. And I think the first one I wanted to bring up was a paper earlier this year in Analytical Chemica Acta, uh, where you talked about static headspace GC. Um, coupled to VUV detection or vacuum ultraviolet detection to characterize some interactions between ionic liquids, which are starting to play a bigger and bigger role in sample preparation. So understanding those interactions is key from the fundamental side, but then looking specifically at environmental contaminants as target analytes of interest. So what inspired you to, to sort of start exploring this specific area? Yeah, uh, so you know, I think this is a great example of, of uh, just seeing an opportunity to try to do some some new fundamental tests. We've been working on looking at environmental contamination, specifically uh, related to oil and gas extraction processes, uh, for for many years. Um, doing a lot of groundwater work, but also ultimately getting into the desire to measure some soil. And uh, you know, being new at that, uh, we were kind of uh, surprised to see like how crazy the matrix effects are that you can get to try to met we we're trying to do headspace analysis of soil and the different soils just hold on to analytes very differently and uh it, it became a huge challenge because you go sample you know 10 from 10 feet from here you get one type of soil you move over a little bit it's a different type of soil and so to try to match those matrices uh just seems like very difficult um and we had a little bit of experience with ionic liquids, but we we tried to use them as a co-solvent because we figured we could, you know, sort of homogenize that matrix. And if we had the right kind of ionic liquid, something that was hydrophilic, we could even maybe make it uh, possible for these you know, more hydrophobic environmental contaminants to get better into the headspace. Uh, but what we didn't uh, expect or anticipate was that the, using these ionic liquid co-solvents with the soils just completely normalized the calibration so that we would no longer need to do matrix matching. And, and so, you know, that we figured that happened for a couple of reasons, the, the, the character of the ionic liquid being, you know, hydrophobic or hydrophilic, as well as this ability to kind of um, homogenize the material, break up interactions and release analytes. And so um, we decided, Hey, well, these ionic liquid co-solvents could be pretty useful in that environmental analysis realm. Uh, but we need to understand, you know, what to pick and what to use. And so uh, we have these GC VUV instruments in our lab. Um, 
and, and we'd been doing some work on those for quite a while. And one of the really nice aspects of the VUV detector is it can do pseudo-absolute quantitation. So meaning that, you know, you get some molecule in the flow cell uh, that has a, a characterized cross-section, you can say exactly how many molecules are there. And so you can remove a lot of calibration that you would, you know, need to do on the front end to, to really... Uh, uh, figure out what you were measuring. And, and so we could just simply, uh, you know, put ionic liquids into these headspace vials after cleaning them, add some of these environmental contaminants, and then characterize the uh, ability of the ionic liquids to increase, let's say, the headspace gas pressure of the of the, the analytes we wanted to test. So uh, we saw increased sensitivity and, and, you know, we were able to utilize this, this kind of unique tool to do this kind of faster and simpler and it, it wasn't, you know, it took a while to, to get it all to work well. Um, you know, for example, we had to make sure we were using like a pressure loop headspace system rather than an, a rail system so that we could make sure we were taking the volumes from the sample that we thought we were and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it, I think all of this work in environmental contamination, um, you know, if you, you have a student who comes in and works on that, they can't get a PhD just you know, envi analyzing environmental samples using the techniques that are out there. I mean, that would be a PhD, maybe in environmental science, but here we have to develop new methods. Um, and, that, you know, there's no shortage of, of opportunities to do that when you start working at some of these, like, complex waste streams and processes out there, especially related to, like, oil and gas. Nice. No, that's, that, that's, I think it's definitely solving a lot of problems that we have, we have now and are going to probably continue to increase as time goes on. And I want to swing back a little bit to that pseudo-absolute quantitation uh, using VUV. So, you know, going through the paper, you know, it really comes back to fundamentals, Beer-Lambert law, which, you know, I would say that most people, after they take an analytical chemistry class, that might be one of, if not the only things they actually remember, you know, going on because it's, it's so simplistic in its nature. So, you know, what, what really inspired being able to take, people are used to thinking about that in terms of absorbance detection from, from HPLC, but when it comes to, you know, vacuum ultraviolet, when it comes to GC, it's still, you know, expanding as time comes on. So what did it, you know, thinking about that derivation, really getting back to the, the basics of analytical chemistry, how did that come about? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the typical, you know, UV everybody thinks of is done in solution, and the solution modulates the, you know, absorption significantly, um, when you take those measurements on the gas phase, you still have all the benefit of, you know, the Beer-Lambert law and the additivity, additivity of, of absorption. Uh, but what happens is that the molar absorptivities or the cross-sections for these molecules are, are rock solid and, and don't change. And so you can, you can database those uh, and, and determine them to good precision and, and, and then if you just, if you know, uh, you know, how much you, you know, what volume you inject and you know all of your flow rates through the cells and your cell dimensions, then you can make this measurement directly of your, your molecules there without any calibration at all. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it certainly is nice in that you can benefit from all of these basic things that a lot of people understand, but, but taking into the gas phase has some significant benefit also. And, and, and you can also, you know, those, those gas phase absorption spectra are highly diagnostic of, of different molecules. So you really have the you know, much more powerful qualitative analysis than you would think about having with a typical LCUV. No, that makes sense. It's definitely a powerful tool to add to the analytical toolbox. And I think one that, you know, will continue to increase in popularity in coming years. So 
you know, looking back on the work as a whole and some of the, you know, conclusions that you described a little bit ago, what do you think, you know, the next steps might be either for you or other separation scientists who maybe want to utilize, you know, this headspace technique, you know, combined with the pseudo-absolute quantitation to maybe improve their sample preparation workflows or at least maybe get a better handle on, you know, the, the recovery or the, the quantitative aspect of, the, of their workflows? Yeah, so uh, I think... Um... On one side, there there's a, a ton of different possibilities for ionic liquids, and and they may have you know better or worse properties. So there's probably room there to. I don't think you have to make anything particularly new. There's a lot of stuff out there that could be investigated for these types of purposes. Um, but uh, you know, the next iteration in such an experiment is is to start to bring in things like the soil and and to to make a multiphasic system. Um, to try to, you know, now, now if you can understand, you know, what the ionic liquid is, is doing by itself, uh, then you can now start to study the, in, the uh, interactions with the soil, uh, expand that list of contaminants. You know, we, we had a, a pretty modest list of contaminants, but, but certainly there are other things people would be interested in. Um, and then I think just, you know, really proving out that kind of a, of a workflow uh, would be very beneficial for, you know, environmental soil analysis. Excellent. No, thank you. All right. So I'll turn it back over to Dwight to talk about some of the other recent work your lab has published. Okay. Thanks, Jim. So uh, one of the other papers that we want to talk about from 2023 is uh, another publication, Analytic Chemica Act, uh, in this case, focusing on uh, looking at low molecular weight proteins using LC coupled to triple quad mass spec. And so uh, we know that this is an area that you've been poking around in for a while, but, you know, it's a really, let's say, uncommon or maybe even rare combination um, looking at proteins with by by triple quad mass spec. So um, I I know, so I'm teaching instrumental methods right now. And it's like when we get to that combination, it's like, yeah, don't don't do that. Here's what you should do. (laughs) So so how did you, you know, again, sort of what's the story here? Like, how did you sort of uh, find your way into this area? Uh, you know, okay, so we, you know, we've had a great partnership with Shimatsu throughout the years, and and gotten our hands on their instrumentation. And I would say, kind of in the you know last 10, 15 years, they've come on with a lot of triple quadrupole instrumentation, and and that's what we had, and that we were, you know, what we were working with, doing a lot of quantitative work uh, on small molecules. But uh, you know, just kind of talking around with one, I had a student who had a biochemistry background and trying to figure out something we can do. She was interested in proteins. Um, we didn't really have any good high resolution offerings. And so we just kind of said, well, why can't we just quantitate these intact proteins like you do with small molecules, create some MRMs for them? Um, sure, you, you'll have no idea what those fragments are that you're generated because they could you know, be any portion of the protein with any charge on it. Um, but if you can demonstrate through, you know, experiments that you can get specific, reliable, unique, and sensitive transitions, then it should be possible. Um, and, and luckily, I, I would say we started in on it before we started asking people, uh, can it be done? Because uh, <laughs> as soon as we started asking people, can it be done? Um, people said no. And, and you know, the, the traditional Japanese answer was, oh, very difficult, which means <laughs> cannot be done. Um, but we had already started, and, and we found that that if you had an instrument um, that you could modulate the collision gas pressure in the collision cell, uh, increase that pressure up significantly, and then you use collisional settings, this is where it was kind of not intuitive. Uh, usually, you, you want to blast apart your small molecule so that you don't have much of the precursor ion remaining, and you've got a, a, you know, as much fragment, 
you know, as many of the fragments as you can with the highest signal. In this case, we found we had to really back off the collision energy. If, if we brought the collision energy down to a place where you had really a significant amount of precursor ion remaining, then we could start to see reproducible and unique fragments. And, and we took this through a bunch of different, um, you know, a, used a bunch of different proteins to show that we could do it. Had multiple students and, you know, visiting scientists could come in and do it. Um, and, and, you know, we wanted to be able to prove that this was a reasonable way to address uh, biological fluid quantitation for intact proteins. Uh, we focused on these small small proteins, you know, these growth factors, because we thought it would be just an interesting panel in general. Um, but what, what we ended up, you know, figuring out in the end is that, yeah, we can do this and we can get pretty decent sensitivity, but the sample preparation for proteins is really lacking. Like there are very few commercial offerings for doing, you know, non-affinity uh, based sample prep for proteins, you know, microplate formats, large pore size particles, um, and, and those types of things. So this study that, that we published there was really an effort to try to take what was available from a solid phase extraction standpoint and see could we uh, go and develop a method where we could target a wide range uh, of proteins at once using the MRM method. And, and we can, but again, I think it just, it speaks also to, um, and this has been interesting to talk to potential industry partners about is, is a need commercially that would be, uh, if, if it came about, could really help advance uh, this type of a workflow. You know, you got a lot more triple quads out there than you have high resolution instruments. And so if people can use that for protein quantitation without, you know, going through these digestion steps and, and do it in a more absolute fashion, um, that would be interesting. So Mm-hmm. Probably a ways to go before that's commonplace, but um, it, it's been nice to to put our foot in that uh, in that pond. Sure, yeah. So I love that. I mean, as I reflect on my own career and think about like what have I done that's been useful um, on the short list, or usually the things that are kind of like this, where it's like uh, just asking why, like what you know, this does nobody does this why, yeah. and sometimes there's not a good answer, and so I think it's a classic example of that. I, I agree. I think when you go, if you, I love the analytical chemistry because we can go and use this in almost any field. Um, but mm-hmm. in doing so, I am, you know, a newbie stepping into so many yeah. fields. But I think that that's a good place to come from because yeah. you're not afraid to ask those maybe dumb questions. But, you know, why, why hasn't anybody tried this? And, right. you know, bring in your experience from past you know, projects and see if it works. Yeah. So in terms of the extraction piece, do you think that this is kind of a classic chicken and egg problem. Like everybody's been doing pro or, or a lot of protein quantitation clinically is done by ELISA. So we don't need any sort of sample prep because you just put it in. Is, is that, do you think that's kind of why, why we are where we are, that there's no materials out there to do it? I, I guess, you know, I, I think people do yeah, focus down on those immuno um, affinity approaches. Um, in my, you know, limited experience, you know, looking at those things it you know, I think they can lack some specificity and selectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like you've had other instances, not just proteins, where people have favored some lab derived, you know, chromatographic mass spec based methods over some type of ELISA strategy just to get better specificity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm sure, you know, that 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 type of, of workflows probably has impeded, you know, you know, companies from spending a lot of resources to try to develop something new. But um, Hopefully that'll change. Yeah. 
So aside from the sample prep issue, are there other like are there other major hurdles uh, getting in the way of this going even further? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd, I'd say uh, the internal standardization is, is a big oh, okay. issue. Uh, you know, one of the big things you want to get out of this is some type of an absolute quantitation, right? All the yeah. bottom up proteomic uh, quantitative steps are, are really more like a relative quantitation. Um, and, and some people like, you know, Russ Grant at LabCorp, they've done, they spent quite a little, lot of money trying to explore, you know, different uh, proteins that you could use internal standards. And that's not I mean, that's fraught with difficulties, too, because you can have different proteoforms and, and things like that. So I, I do think that's a that's a big challenge. Um, I will say that even, you know, at the outset of our starting for this work, though, the number of um, standards that we could get for proteins was just increasing, increasing, increasing as we go. So I think, you know, as commercial manufacturers know, you know, these people who, you know, Sigma Aldrich and companies that sell a lot of chemicals realize that there's this need that, that there'll be more effort put there. Okay, great. Well, I think that uh, sort of wraps up what we wanted to do for the second paper. And uh, so I'll turn it back to Jim. Yeah, so you mentioned sort of being a newbie in an area, and, and a few years ago I started dabbling in supercritical fluid chromatography. You were one of the people who I think had more experience when this. I reached out to you just to kind of pick your brain a little bit. Cause it's... But not too much more experience. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of things that, you know, if you're used to, you know, standard reverse phase LC, maybe not not as intuitive. So, and I think in general over the years, the technique has really ebbed and flowed, you know, but I would say that at least over the past, let's say, decade or so, interest has remained steady if not started to increase a bit and specifically you know from your group i think there's been a lot of focus on combining sfc with online supercritical fluid extraction and so you could you tell us a little bit about that technique in general and then maybe what makes it different from other online sample extraction methods like spe sure yeah i mean you know i think one of the 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 most attractive aspects of having an online SFE SFC is is the potential very broad applicability of, of that technique to, you know, essentially almost any application that you could imagine tackling with a GC or LC. Um, and uh, you know, I I was always kind of drawn to it a bit. Uh, I in my Virginia Tech when I was in graduate school, Larry Taylor was he was on my committee and he wrote kind of the book on supercritical fluid extraction and. I had, you know, uh, taken his course, and and um, so I, I was coming in with maybe a little bit of background. But you're right; it's it's very different. Uh, but I think the capability that this instrument can provide for, you know, doing the extraction, minimizing sample handling, it also would minimize the exposure of an extract to the external environment, um, better recoveries for doing things online. Uh, all of these things are very attractive. Excellent. Nice. So in 2020, you know, sort of better reveal the, the fundamental nature of this process. Uh, your group published a paper on looking at a multivariate approach to see, you know, how the various experimental parameters maybe had an effect on each other in terms of the extraction efficiency for SFC, SFC. So really, I think a big boost to the theory that was needed. So what do you think are, you know, at least from your findings, the biggest things that affect, you know, the efficiency of extraction using SFE? Uh, oh, okay. So, um, you know, I would say one of the aspects of this that kind of drew us to do that study is that there are a lot of variables to optimize in that extraction process. Uh, so you, you have some kind of static extraction time and you have some kind of a dynamic extraction time. And in there you can have, you know, different temperatures and pressures and modifier concentrations. Um, 
and, and knowing where to start with one of those variables or, you know, with a given application, I've got, you know, analyte X on the sample Y uh, is, is very challenging. Um, so we, we, you know, we decided to uh, take a kind of first stab at this using, for example, a factorial design to, uh, to try to see which variables, variables for, were most important. Um, and, and certainly, you know, as you might expect, uh, some combinations of, of extraction pressure, uh, modifier concentrations, and, uh, you, you know, uh, time, you know, time to basically doing the static and dynamic extractions seem to be, you know, most important. The fact that we actually ruled out temperature um, in that study because uh, it, it, it took so long to, to heat up the vials and, and cool them down. So just from a practical standpoint, it, it wasn't one of the strongest variables. And I think it has a lot of covariance with the pressure. Um, that's not so perfectly understood, but uh, in terms of, of what it will do, but uh, we were able to do that and kind of limit the number of variables, run this response surface methodology and, and really gain an appreciation for how variable an optimal starting extraction condition would be for different analytes that seem very similar and then you place them on not too different type of matrices and, and it can change significantly there. Um, so yeah, we were up against, uh, a, a, we, we realized very quickly that we were up against a problem that, you know, maybe even this traditional you know, using this multivariate fancy optimization wasn't good enough really to help us solve the problem. Okay. Okay. No, it's, I mean, and I think that leads to, you know, kind of what I was wanted to talk a little bit about next is that you're pushing not only sort of maybe multivariate, you know, approaches, but, you know, in terms of overall design experiment, integrating other data science techniques that maybe other fields of analytical chemistry have applied, but maybe are, are becoming newer in chromatography. So um, can you give us a little preview of maybe ways that you're thinking about expanding that approach? Maybe, you know, I know you've mentioned before, you know, integrating a machine learning into some of the things you're thinking about, but what do you think these new data science approaches can bring to, you know, the chromatographic field in general? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I think analytical chemists are, are pretty familiar with some basic chemometric approaches like, you know, response surfaces and, and you know, basic optimization designs. Um, you know, but but in this case, I, we felt that it, it wasn't enough and we needed some experts really to push the boundaries. And uh, we were able to get together with some industrial engineers here at UTA, experts in data science. And, and we put together an NSF grant that got supported, uh, which was, you know, using basically machine learning and what's called surrogate optimization, kind of it's a more advanced kind of uh, flexible op optimization that can, you know, do uh, multi-curve surfaces and things like that, um, but but to apply those to try to help you know, create maybe some kind of eventual smart database that would say if I have this sample in this analyte, here's where I should start with my analysis parameters. Um, so you know, I, it was I was very happy to get that funded. I uh, I've been I've been uh, I guess. Uh, one of those naysayers in terms of saying, you know, NSF's got to support more basic separation science. And so I, you know, can put my foot in my mouth a little bit there. I, I appreciate that they have in this case. Um, but yeah, we, we wanted to be able to uh, create, you know, basically molecular features that we could uh, use machine learning models to basically uh, train a model to predict physical properties of these uh, compounds. And then essentially integrate those with the, the different types of sample matrices that you might consider as well as different type of SFC columns. Um, so 
it's, it's funny though. Uh, most of our headway so far has been um, in the prediction of VUV absorption spectra. Uh, so, you know, taking a step back, right? If you, you you think about any molecule that you'd want to like, you know, predict its uh, performance on this SFBSFC system, you know, what are you gonna? How are you gonna characterize that molecule? If you just pick like a log P or PKA or molecular weight, you ain't gonna get very far. Um, and you could go to some more complex things like Abraham, you know, solvation parameters, but those aren't easy to get for new molecules. Uh, so the idea was, you know, what could we, could we use machine learning to just basically teach uh, a model how a molecule behaves just based on how the molecules put together, literally just uh, generate a set of features from its 3D uh, chemical structure. And, and we, we decided we, we had this vacuum ultraviolet absorption library where we had, you know, you know 1,500 compounds with their absorption spectra. Uh, could we go and we could, could we predict those spectra? And, and indeed, if you, you know, take things like certain bond counts and, uh, and different uh, um, functional groups and aromatic units and you create a vector for a molecule, you can actually do some quite nice prediction of these spectra. So, you know, next step is to build that into our SFC workflow um, and, uh, you know, try to put all that together. Uh, it, it's, it's complicated, but we, we are making some headway down each of these pieces. And it's been very interesting to work with the data scientists and, you know, try to share our expertise with them and try to learn what the heck they're talking about. Um, it, that, that part takes time uh, to, to really get to be um, successful and productive, but it's been fun. No, I think that's definitely indicative of the trend of collaborative science being a, you know, crucial part of as we move forward. All right. Thanks, uh, Jim and Kevin, for the discussion of those papers. I think that was really great. And so now we're going to switch gears a little bit and, and kind of talk about some more, let's say, topical areas. And, and for the first one here, uh, Jim, go ahead. All right. Thanks, Dwight. So, Kevin, I would say, in my opinion, I think you've been a great supporter of younger generation of separation scientists that are now coming up in the ranks of academia industry. You've definitely, you know, played a great role mentoring me over the years. And so what inspires you to play this role in the separation science community? Yeah, it's uh, well, I think it's it's super important that we're, you know, helping each other out. Um, I certainly received a lot of great mentorship from uh, McNair and, and Wolfgang Lindner coming up through my schooling. Um, but what I didn't expect to happen was, you know, right after I joined UT Arlington, the, the next person they hired was Dan Armstrong. And then uh, right after that was, was Sandy Dasgupta. Um, I, I was I was quite ready to be overshadowed, but rather uh, it was quite the opposite. You know, they did everything in their power to introduce me to people in the field. They were inviting you know great people from around the country to come speak at UTA and to meet with me. Um, and uh, you know, so I got to really grow my network, and and they helped you know with the whole funding process. So I think it really uh, reduced stress levels, gave me a lot of opportunities I wouldn't have expected. And so, you know, going forward and, and having had some, some success and, and, and now seeing kind of the next generation coming through, I feel like we, we need to have as, as much, uh, encouragement, uh, and, and help to help these people succeed. I think that, uh, we don't have a ton of, of younger, uh, people coming up through the ranks that could be, uh, you know, the next uh, Jim Jorgensen and, and Harold McNair, you know, and these people, uh, you, you look at the people that we've kind of followed and you're like, wow, uh, you know, where, what are we going to do when we, we lose that brain power? Uh, we really better, you know, help develop that. So, I, you know, I, I think that that's kind of 
motivated me to to help people out. I mean, he, uh, also nice people and good. You know, it's good to see the success of, of the people that you've helped out. You know, as they move forward. So it's been a really fulfilling part. But I think it's it's, it's absolutely essential for our science. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Make sure you keep it up. All right, so next question is, uh, I guess, more about your sort of international network. So you've, uh, you did postdoctoral work in Europe, you've done sabbaticals there, and you just spoke earlier about uh, the Fulbright and so spending some time in Europe as part of that. So can you speak to sort of how, you know, the emphasis there, sort of how you've developed that network and maybe the importance of that network for you uh, professional as things have developed? Yeah, uh, you know, I, so after college, I went and did, you know, the obligatory one-month backpacking trip in Europe and was quite <laughs> smitten. Uh, I joined McNair's group, and uh, I realized very quickly that, you know, he was a Fulbright uh, recipient way back when, and, and we had all manner of people coming from all over the world into our lab to spend time with us, to learn, to research together. And um, and I really was envious of all of the nice international contacts that McNair had. And I was like, I, w I want something like that. And so after I was done with the PhD, I said, uh, you know, I, I think I might like to go spend a postdoc time and live in Europe for a while. And um, he, you know, McNair linked me up with Lindner and, and that was, you know, all fortuitous. It was a great time. Um, during the time I was there, I got to interact with other people from other countries because Lindner's group in Vienna was also very multinational um and and so developed some great connections to to people in, in italy and czech republic and, and germany and and really uh, you know it's one of my favorite parts about this job is traveling not just to europe but i, I think i i like europe the most but you know being able to go and see new places and and um you know having that cultural influence into the science i think makes it makes it very nice and, and fulfilling so you know it's it's uh you know, it's this is a global science, and and we're all you know trying to push towards same goals, and so we might as well you know try to enjoy it and do it together. Uh, so if that means I have to go over to Europe for a few times to to do that, I'm I'm all good with that. Yeah, I I agree with you 100% in terms of that being an enjoyable part of the job. I mean, not not only the travel, but just the relationships with people from different places. You learn a lot, and the thing is now, I mean, it's one maybe kind of a silver lining of COVID is like. It's easy now. We we know how to do this virtual meeting thing. It can do it really effectively. So I think uh, we'll see more and more of that. Hopefully, I agree. Yeah. No, it's it's funny how these virtual things have now become just such a second nature part of our, our yep. work day. Yep. Yeah. So I would say that maybe this role you're now somewhat semi-retired from, but you know when it came to LCGC, you had a very long-running blog series, and you still contribute from it from time to time. Um, Looking back at some of your most recent articles, you've highlighted a, a big interest in forensic aspects of chromatography and really specifically the legal implications of proper analytical method validation for tests. I think mostly, you know, revolving around, you know, drug and alcohol impairment. And so could you share with the listener some of the things you think are the good analytical practices that maybe aren't always being followed in this this space? Yeah, um, I you know, I had just I had gotten an opportunity about 10 years ago to talk to a lawyer and, and look at a case, you know, his blood alcohol case. Um, and I was kind of taken aback by the deficiencies and, you know, things like method validation and quality control. And 
you know, I thought that was a one-off. They brought me in because they had this, you know, crappy case and you know, needed me to, to do that. But as the years went on, um, and I and I saw more and more of these cases from around the country, I realized that there there does seem to be a significant deficiency in the efforts that many of these labs are doing in order to um, do sound science. I mean, uh, you know, could you imagine methods where you're measuring things from biological fluids but never incorporated a biological fluid control? I mean, if I mentioned that to my, my students in class who are just learning these things, and they realize that's crazy. Or could you imagine uh, that you're, you, you claim that your, your instrument and method is validated because you did it on another instrument? So this m- instrument must be working fine. That, that stuff's common practice. And so as you go and experience this, I just, you know, well, number one, okay, it's, it's an interesting route to do some consulting and maybe make a little extra money. But, you know, from the analytical scientist to me is really like, uh, you know, has problems with how a lot of these labs are doing things. And I guess the only way, you know, to approach that, okay, you write some of these blog articles and try to get the, the, the word out there uh, that there's a problem, but it's really kind of on a case by case basis and going and, and testifying and, 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 and for trying to bring these problems to light. But um, it's a, uh, it's, it's a big problem. I think, you know, it's not science that's hard to do uh, well. And I, but I feel like labs are cutting corners for time and money purposes. I don't know what, but um, they're certainly not generally conforming to what, the industry says, you know, they should be doing for best practices in, in method validation and quality control. It's, it's really quite surprising uh, when you when you get into it. Thanks for your insight on that. Okay, um, so next topic and, and kind of the last one for these uh, topical discussions is you, you, I think you're known in the separations community as one who's really built a lot of uh, strong and, and productive relationships with industry partners of, of all kinds. So, uh, again, can you just kind of speak to how, how that really has developed over the years and, and sort of the significance or importance of that um, in terms of your overall research program? Sure. Uh, you know, I think it kind of... Uh, it, it developed out of necessity kind of early on when you, you know, you're young assistant professor trying to bring in some funding. And I, I remember very clearly having seen a CV from like one of our senior engineering professors. And I was looking at his list of, of support and I was like, well, I mean, he doesn't have any multi-year federal grants and this guy is just, you know, going gangbusters and you look and it's like 50,000 here, you know, 25,000 here, a hundred thousand here. And there's all these, industry partners and i you know i figure it's like well why, why couldn't i be doing more of that um we got a good relationship with shimatsu and they started introducing me to various other places ResTech has supported our work for the past 10 years and um we just kind of took the mindset that you know we'd be willing to work on almost anything where we can use our instrumentation you know what are you interested in solving what are the problems that you have and uh you know if we can give you some value, will you, you know, support some students to do some research on it? And uh, so it, it really has morphed into, you know, the biggest support of the work in our laboratory is is from, you know, industrial contractors, you know, be, be they instrument manufacturers or or somebody who's interested in, you know, developing a new technology to treat wastewater, you know, things like that. Um, but it's 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 the type of thing that if you can get one, even though it's short term. If you can keep them happy, then they'll keep coming back. And then, 
you can add the next one on there and 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 build it into something that's sustainable okay great well uh we're going to wrap up the, the main discussion part of the interview here. And, and I like to close with some, let's say, quicker, lighter questions. So we, uh, we had a, sort of settled on a few of these to, that you might want to respond to. So the first one is, uh, best analytical advice ever given to me was? So, and I, and I will say that this is probably not just analytical advice, but I consider this uh, advice to live by. And that was from, you know, late Professor McNair. He, he said it many times is that if you have somebody who's teaching you something, uh, you have a duty to pay it forward. You have to um, be willing to, to take the time, not just to learn it yourself, but because somebody gave you that knowledge, have to be willing to give it forward to somebody else. And I think you know, paying it forward is something I think about a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, I, uh, I've heard, uh, not that particular one precisely, but, uh, similar things from, let's say the wiser folks in our community. And I really appreciate that stuff as well. Okay. Second one is, uh, if I could wave a magic wand and solve one key problem in my work, it would be, uh, it would be instrument maintenance contracts. <laughs> yes. uh, and so, yeah, we, we in 2012 went into this partnership with Shimadzu and got all of this instrumentation at UTA. And it came with each instrument had six years of full coverage. And uh, our research productivity skyrocketed, you know, to the point where, you know, 20 papers a year, uh, you know, when the instruments are running and, and you, or, or if they go down and you can get them back up quickly, man, productivity can be high. But as you, I'm sure, very well know, uh, if an instrument goes down, it can be very expensive if you don't have that contract. And it can take time to get that, you know, get it back up and running, whether you can do it yourself, you got to call somebody in. Um, and and uh, that has become a really a thorn in my side, you know, having experienced, you know, running a lab that had everything fully covered for several years. And now, uh, now I'm, now I'm like trying to find money for a new turbo pump uh, so I can get, you know, a mass spec up running. I think that universities have to rethink how they handle major research instrumentation. Uh, it's just not sustainable. And, and it's, it's crazy that we get, you know, we need these multi-million dollar, you know, setups, but, we're not going to, you know, put in the uh, resources to keep it all going. I think that needs to be solved somehow. Yeah, I'll second that motion. Jim will tell you, among many other problems in my day yesterday, one of them was a broken QTOF. So amen to that. Yeah. And I, I agree. I mean, the thing I tell students about this is like the, the days, you know, 50 years ago, like you could build your own instrument and, and do publication <laughs> quality work with that, right? You can't yeah. do that anymore. Well, not... and it, 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 the same thing you talk about with smart, the right to fix issue as well. It's getting tougher and tougher to be able to fix the yeah. things you want to in terms of availability of parts, you know, what you are and aren't allowed to do without voiding some kind of warranty. Yeah, so so there's a lot of a lot of aspects to this issue. Okay, so we, we touched the nerve there. All right, <laughs> good stuff. All right, last, uh, last question here. Uh, uh... Maybe not so touchy. Uh, what sources do you use to gather new ideas and the latest information? So I, you know, I, uh, I pretty, um, I pretty regularly, you know, make sure if I get a table of contents from a journal that comes through my email, I'm, I'm reading those titles. Uh, 
and and I you know occasionally come up upon some things, but um, I tell you what's been the most uh, information rich source that I had is I set up a whole series of Google Scholar alerts, and so uh, you know couple times a week you just get a, a email that has you know all the papers that have been published on that topic so you know short of going to the conferences and and seeing the stuff presented which I, you know i think is obviously a, a great way to get at new information I, I think the google scholar alerts are something that i've been very happy with because i've you know i see something you know shoot it out to the to students you know for the projects they're working on you know grab the article for myself it's uh it's been very useful yeah, I think that's uh, that's great advice. It's uh, it's like I talk with students now. The challenge is not so much um, whether or not the information exists, but how to how to manage it, how to how to yeah. deal deal with the firehouse, right? So if you do if you do set up a, a Google Scholar alert, and you know I was setting up one, we were working with uh, restricted access media, mm-hmm. um, and and if you just search that. You, you get a lot of uh, weird other stuff if you don't clarify that search term with chromatography. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be careful how you set up these Google Scholar alerts in order to get the information you're looking for. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's something else. All right. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thanks first to Jim uh, Gunnias for joining me as co-host today. This has been really great. And no, thanks uh, for thanks. the opportunity. Yep. And and thanks, Kevin, for joining us and, and sharing your insights and, and some of your recent publications as well as a variety of other topics that we see uh, in the analytical space. Yeah, it's been great talking to you guys. I appreciate the opportunity.